Hi, good afternoon everyone. It's standing room only at the Australia India Institute this afternoon, which is what we love to see. I'd like to welcome you all here to Barry Street. My name's Craig Jeffrey. I'm the director of the Australia India Institute. I'd like to start by paying respects to the traditional owners of the land uh, on which we meet today, the Wurundjeri people. Uh, I'd like to particularly acknowledge their elders, past, present and emerging, and pay tribute to the relationship that the University of Melbourne is building with uh, uh, the Wurundjeri people and, and uh, indigenous population in this region. This is a wonderful event this afternoon to be able to welcome the Honourable Senator Lisa Singh to the AAI, not for the first time. Lisa was saying just now that she was here, I think, four or five years ago, talking about multiculturalism. We all know in this room how much has changed over the past four or five years in terms of the Australia-India relationship. So we're particularly excited at this moment to be hearing uh, from Lisa about Federal Labour's vision for the Australia-India relationship and to get her take on the, uh, the India economic strategy and the little flyers of the strategy are on your chairs. I don't know if we have any full 455-page versions. Oh, we do, we have some at the back, so if you're desperate to read all 455 pages, there's a few on the fireplace at the back there. Uh, as I think um, most of you know, uh, the Honourable Lisa Singh very well. I'm not going to spend too long introducing her, but I would like to note that uh, Lisa Singh has been representing Tasmania in the Australian Senate now since 2010. Uh, when she was elected in 2010, she was the first woman of South Asian heritage to be elected to Australia's parliament, the first person, I think, of South Asian heritage to be elected to the Australian parliament. And we were talking over lunch, I think, there are now only four people of Asian origin in the Australian Parliament. Senator Singh's been very deeply engaged in the Australia-India relationship in a whole series of ways. She's participated in the AII's Australia-India Leadership Dialogue in Delhi and in Australia. She's been involved in the Lowy Institute's Australia-India Roundtables. She's been a very keen supporter of the Australia-India Youth Dialogue. And also, Lisa's been commenting a great deal on a series of international issues that pertain to India and the South Asian region, including related to refugees, to gender rights, to um, issues of international relations with respect to South Asia. In 2016, the Senator was seconded to the United Nations General Assembly as a delegate from the Australian Parliament, so someone very deeply engaged in international relations in general, quite aside from her, the expertise that she's developed on the Australia-India relationship. A quick plug, earlier this morning, uh, Senator Singh recorded a podcast interview uh, on what next for Australia-India relations, which I hope will be viewed as a compliment to the recording of this presentation. And she recorded that podcast with one of our AII fellows, uh, Professor Priya Chako, who, who is um, an expert in this area herself, and that will be available on our website, I think, from Friday, Simon, if, that, if that's right. I'm looking for Simon. He's maybe not in the room. Uh, before handing over to the Senator, I want to acknowledge the supporters for this afternoon's event. So in addition to the AAI, we've partnered this afternoon with the Asia Law Centre at the University of Melbourne, 
and also with La Trobe Asia, La Trobe University, which is one of our partner universities. Senator Singh, we're absolutely thrilled that you're here. I'd like now to invite you to take the stage and you can have my microphone. Thank you, Craig, and good afternoon, everyone. It's really pleasing to see that the room is full this afternoon. I know there's a number of activities and, and busyness that you all would have on today. Can I also just start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to their associated traditions and customs and elders, both past and present. And can I also just say namaste, sashri kal, vanakum. Um, I know there's a number of you of Indian origin in the room today. I may not have um, welcomed you with one of those greetings, but I was trying to cover some of India in at least those welcomes. And can I also welcome the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Distinguished Professor Ruth Fincher. It's lovely to meet you and have you here today. Well, I had the pleasure of recently attending AsiaLink's Chairman's Gala Dinner, at which the 2018 Sir Edward Weary Dunlop Medal was awarded to Mr Peter Varghese AO, former Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and Chancellor of the University of Queensland. And that award rightly recognised the enduring contribution Mr Varghese has made throughout his diplomatic career to advancing Australia's engagement with Asia, and specifically his leadership of Australia's new India Economic Strategy to 2035. I'm sure you've all got the, the summary on your seats. And I, I think that really summed up indeed the fact that no one, no one has led Australia's economic policy on India more powerfully at the government level than Mr Varghese. And his recent report, I think, does solidify that. AsiaLink's annual keynote address was delivered by former Foreign Minister and Chancellor of the Australian National University, Professor the Honourable Gareth Evans, ACQC, who cogently drove home the message that for us to engage fully in the Indo-Pacific and to continue to prosper, we need to ensure that the number of Asian Australians in positions of influence is reflective of the society in which we live here in Australia. And I think that message was clear a clear call for all politicians, business and academia to step up and address this uncomfortable fact that while Asian Australians make up some 12% of our population, they only represent 1.5% of leadership positions across the country. So as I was discussing with you today, and as Mr Varghese makes clear in his landmark report, the long-term success of any future economic strategy may depend upon how deeply we do engage with our Indian diaspora here in Australia and foster stronger people-to-people -people links. But why should we deepen our relationship with India and how should we go about it? Well, I guess the simple answer is, as we all may know, there is no country over the next 20 years that offers more opportunity for Australia, Australian business and our region than India. Let me expand on that briefly. 
Following a sustained period of economic and infrastructure reforms, which kicked off in the early 1990s, India has progressed to become the world's fastest growing economy, fastest growing major economy, both economically and in population terms, on track to be the world's third largest economy and most populous. And meanwhile, for us in Australia, we are approaching our 28th consecutive year of economic growth, by far the longest of any country in modern history. The last time our economy took a turn, internet browsing had just been invented. So while the sources of this growth have been manifold, the central driver has been our riding the wave of the Asian century. Indeed, three in every four dollars we make from overseas trade comes from Asia. In the space of 30 years, Asia has seen unprecedented transformations. Hundreds of millions in the region have been lifted out of poverty. More than 650 million across China and India combined. We have seen average incomes increase and a new middle class emerge. But our existing approach to the Asian century is unlikely to work for us into the future. Headwinds are on the horizon. To date, the growth we have experienced from Asia's rise has overwhelmingly been driven by China's remarkable development, which brought with it a voracious demand for our commodities, mainly coal and iron ore, and services, tourism and education. And this has pretty much dominated our international economic and geopolitical strategy. Today, we are one of, if not the most, China-dependent economies in the developed world. In fact, not since the United Kingdom in 1950s, following World War II, has a single country's market had such a profound impact on Australia's economy. It's important we continually look for ways to diversify our economy to broaden economic links across the region and build on existing policies, such as from the Gillard government's Asian Century White Paper and develop a more nuanced approach to the Indo-Pacific region. That's what Labor's future Asia policy is about and I will expand upon later. More broadly, beyond our shared values, Australia and India have benefited from Asia's rise occurring in coherence with an international rules-based order that has played a key role in shaping international cooperation and stability, and particularly through the post-war institutions such as the United Nations, the World Trade Organization and the World Bank. But as economic weight shifts, so does the potential for its geopolitical counterpart to do the same. And as Asia forges its own path and moves beyond Western markets, it will develop more room to shape its cross-border relationships and the norms and rules that govern the flows of people, goods and services. And I think this is most evident with China, whose actions across the region, further afield and in international institutions, demonstrate that they do not always agree with those countries backing the existing international rules-based order. China is and will always be important to Australia. Despite inevitable differences, we must continue to engage and work with China where we can. 
but we must also forge stronger bonds with our Indo-Pacific neighbours, India in particular. As Penny Wong, our Shadow Foreign Minister, recently said, Australia wants a region which retains a system of institutions, rules and norms to guide behaviour, to enable collective action and to resolve disputes. A region in which those seeking to make or shape the rules do so through negotiation, not imposition. A region with an open trading system and investment transparency to maximise opportunity a region where outcomes are not determined only by power. So why India, why with India is not just about diversification, it's about recognising that both Australia and India share values and interests in regional institutions and upholding an international rules-based order. So turning to the question of how with India, I think that's where Mr Varghese's report becomes so critically important for us. I'm sure many of you here today are aware that India's remarkable economic potential and have pursued some of the report. If not, there are copies down the back. I'm proud to say that my party, the Australian Labor Party, supports this report in its entirety. As many of you may know, though, for decades, Australia has gone through waves of rediscovering India. But each effort has lacked consistent political will. In fact, about a decade ago now, the then Minister for Foreign Affairs, Stephen Smith, observed that previous government's approaches to India resembled a T20 cricket match, short bursts of enthusiasm followed by lengthy periods of inactivity. But it's clear today that if we continue to drift and fail to set up, step up, we risk of losing out to other countries that have already recognised the complementarity India can provide in the years ahead. So our relationship is at a turning point. And what we need is a roadmap that leads to a stronger economic partnership. So Mr Varghese's report, released in July last year, provides that roadmap. It charts an ambitious and confident course for Australia's future engagement with India through to 2035, and it's perhaps our first truly comprehensive long-term India strategy. Mr Varghese focused on three pillars, economic relations, geopolitical convergence, and people-to-people -people links across 10 sectors where our competitive advantages match India's current and projected needs, and in only 10 of India's 27 states. And the reasons for this level of specificity are manifold. But to explain briefly, just as Australia regards itself as a modern multicultural melting pot with overarching shared norms, India too is rich in diversity. You might not be aware that India has 22 officially recognised languages, at least nine recognised religions, and like Australia, significant climate variability between its north in Jammu Kashmir and its south in Tamil Nadu. It is an aggregation of very different states and regional economies. So we can't approach India with a one-size-fits-all strategy. Turning firstly to the first pillar, Mr Varghese makes a cautious estimate 
that an opportunity exists to expand our export market from around a current $15 billion to as much as $45 billion over the coming decades and for our investment in India to rise tenfold. The report emphasises our economy's complementarity. As India's growth continues to advance, it will need more of what Australia can and has developed a competitive advantage in providing. There's considerable room for India to continue its meteoric rise. Its median age is only 27, a demographic of tech-savvy millennials keen for knowledge. In fact, by 2025, one-fifth of the world's working age will be Indian. And its expanding consumer class are hungry for, ser for services and consumption. 90% of its workers are still engaged in the informal economy. And perhaps most astonishingly, India's government is seeking to upskill some 400 million of its citizens moving them into the formal economy and expanding the country's secondary and tertiary industries prowess. So against that backdrop, Mr Varghese rightly begins by focusing on education as its flagship sector. As, the world -class, as a world-class education provider, there is no sector with greater promise for Australia, indeed here Victoria, in India than education as I know this institute uh, is keenly aware of. Victoria's two largest source countries for international tertiary and vocational students are China and India. But in this area, it is India which presents the most opportunity. Its tertiary age population, as I said, is the largest in the world. Whereas China's 15 to 29 year old demographic is projected to decrease in the coming decades as its population ages, a legacy of the one China policy. India's on the other hand is projected to increase by in excess of 16 million. As India takes steps to ensure its youth are equipped to enter the workforce and respond to technological change, it will need to look abroad to bridge its domestic capacity gap we can step up and help fill that much needed capacity. But moving beyond education, he then identifies three lead sectors, agriculture, resources and tourism, and six promising sectors, energy, health, financial services, infrastructure, sports, science and innovation. So this presents a myriad of opportunities for Australia and Victoria. And Labor has announced that it will hold annual Australia Week in India trade missions, focusing on these 10 sectors and these 10 states. At the moment, trade missions to India are held every two years. Labor will also set up a study in Australia education hub in New Delhi. We'll restore 1.5 million in funding cut from the Australian Education Foundation. We'll explore options for a consortium of Australian universities to be the lead partner in the establishment of one of the six new Indian Institutes of Technology. We'll promote more direct air services between Australia and India. And we'll establish a strategic economic dialogue where every two years the Australian Treasurer and the Australian Trade Minister meet with the Indian Finance Minister and Commerce Minister to look at how we are tracking and what more can be done to deepen and strengthen our economic partnership. 
For Victoria, all of this comes on top of the Andrews government's existing long-term India strategy, which has now been in play, I understand, for some time. And I do commend Daniel Andrews and his government for being so proactive at the state level on Victoria's uh, India strategy, a strategy that has identified which key growth and emerging sectors in India to target in the years and decades to come, and which lays out a number of policies to improve the state's people-to-people links, um, which I'll turn to shortly. But importantly, that Victoria does that because it is the state with the highest number of Indian diaspora. Before I do that, though, I do want to address briefly the second pillar of geopolitics. For much of the 20th century, Australia's engagement with Asia was restrained. We practised a conservative deference to Britain and its interests, and the white Australia policy hindered our standing in the region. The end of the white Australia policy and key national reforms enabled us to engage with our region openly and with greater independence. In 1989, Gareth Evans, as Labor Minister for Foreign Affairs, launched our first Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Meeting in Canberra, having earlier played a key role in securing peace in Cambodia. By 1991, the ASEAN countries became our second largest export market, taking 12% of our exports, moving ahead of both what was then the European community as well as the United States. And shortly thereafter, Prime Minister Paul Keating delivered a speech entitled Australia and Asia, Knowing Who We Are. In that speech, he made an impassioned plea for Australia to remove all signs of our being a branch office of the empire, positing that such views were, and I quote, debilitating to our national culture, our economic future, our destiny as a nation in Asia and the Pacific that we needed to shed our hostility and develop our relationship with Asia and the Pacific. And at that time, our concept of Asia was different. ASEAN, the Pacific, Japan, China, which was the undergoing, which was then undergoing a series of, of sweeping political, economic and cultural changes themselves. Of course, today that has expanded greatly. Keating spoke of the fading strategic structure of the Cold War and the changing United States economic strategic positioning in the region. Today, this economic and strategic power balance is again shifting. Keating's clarion call is as loud today as it was back then. And indeed, as historian Professor David Walker observed recently, Asia is a shifting idea defined by time and circumstance in which it is discussed or envisioned rather than by geography. Geographers may not like that in their own. (laughs) Its inhabitants are diverse, a manifold community of identities, cultures, ideas, norms and values. And it is clear that Australia and the region stand to benefit greatly through deep and ongoing Indian engagement. Labor agrees with Mr Varghese that India should be brought into APEC and Indo-Pacific discourse. It is axiomatic that India and Australia share a common interest in the continuation of an international rules-based order to ensure peace and stability in our region. And clearly working cooperatively at the multilateral and regional levels where our interests are similar can promote our partnership and shared commitment to that international order. 
We should proactively work with India in regional and international fora, such as the East Asia Summit, ASEAN, International Energy Agency, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. And on security, India, like many countries in the region, is bolstering its defence capabilities. While an impetus for India is securing its land-based borders and related disputes, another is its maritime security, on which we both place great importance on the maintenance of a peaceful, open Indian Ocean. In fact, from 2014 to 2018, our joint defence activities have more than tripled, from 11 to 38. This has helped us develop better understandings of our respective capabilities and strengths and where we can improve. The importance of these activities cannot be underestimated. From a maritime perspective alone, about half of our trade passes through the Indian Ocean, including energy products. So accordingly, we should engage in a long-term commitment with India to consider in its broader strategy making and cooperate to ensure that the Indo-Pacific's maritime environment remains stable. The Labor's Future Asia Plan envisages these broad strategic considerations and outlines a comprehensive regional engagement framework, which includes bolstering our diplomatic infrastructure, leveraging our diaspora communities, reciprocal internship programs with India, China and Indonesia to improve the Asian business experience amongst Australian entrepreneurs and managers, maximising trade opportunities including making Australia India, Australia China and Australia Indonesia Week annual events and tackling behind the non-tariff barriers and improving the teaching and take-up of Asian languages in our schools, including Hindi. Geopolitics aside, it is the third pillar, our people-to-people links and the diaspora of Indian Australians, which Varghese highlights will prove the most important over the long term. Unfortunately, it is clear through this, that the strength of our ties has not kept pace as India and Australia have respectively evolved. Indeed, our diaspora is a national asset that, for the longest time, governments have failed to give due attention. Instead pursuing an exclusionary focus on our links to the Anglosphere and considering our relationship with our neighbours as transactional rather than cultural. Prime Minister John Howard's famous 1996 proclamation that we do not claim to be Asian comes to mind, as does Prime Minister Tony Abbott's 2013 revival of imperial honours. Let's forget about that one. <laughs> but this is where the depths of our common history with India need to be reflected upon so we can find a common path forward. Under the British Raj, Indian indentured labourers travelled to the colonies, including Australia, and helped lay the foundations of, the Australia, of Australia's development from colony to country. The influence of this area on Victoria's development is seen today. For instance, you might not know that the Melbourne suburb of Travancore, only a kilometre or so from here, is named after an Indian kingdom that existed from 1500 to 1949. If you venture around this suburb's many heritage streets, you will find that their names correspond with pro prominent Indian names such as Delhi Court, Madura Street, Kashmir Street and Padman Lane. 
and you can take a stroll through Delhi Reserve. And of course, many British officials stationed in India opted to retire in Australia, bringing with them their affection for India and its charms. This most notably includes our famous Australian verandas, which are named after the Hindi word veranda and were inspired by Indian architecture copied during the British Raj. Or that until long-distant undersea cables were invented, telegraphs between Australia and much of the world passed through India. And whilst we fought side by side in in the First World War, a great deal has changed in those last hundred years. As two strong democratic nations, we both have developed our own independence and cultural diversity. And turning to the present day, Australia, of course, is no longer an outpost of the empire and neither is India. Today, Australia does not find itself at the Antipodes, but in the heart of the Indo-Pacific, with more Indian residents than any other OECD nation. Our Indian diaspora now numbers some 700,000 strong, tripling over the past decade. And today, India is an economic superpower in the making. India's young are a tech-savvy generation who make up much of the country's 500 million internet users. They are millennials with a thirst for knowledge and an intrigue about the world they live in. Forging stronger people-to-people links will be key to shaping the awareness of these young people and their perceptions of Australia. So to promote deeper integration of our diaspora, we need to support leading professionals, young leaders and scholars who can help strengthen ties between India and Australia. But government cannot do this alone. Those who have the power to invigorate our people-to-people ties and our diaspora need to step up. The Australia-India Youth Dialogue is a good example of this. Each year it brings together young leaders from Australia and India to collaborate, network and strategise on how to build the bilateral relationship. And it's why I'm so delighted that Professor Gareth Evans announced at the AsiaLink event that the ANU and PricewaterhouseCoopers and AsiaLink have agreed to join forces and be the initial co-conveners of an an Asian-Australian leadership summit. This is an opportunity to implement a new national commitment to both recognise and break through the barriers that are holding Asian-Australians out of positions of influence. During my time in politics, I've had the privilege of engaging and promoting dialogue with the subcontinent, and I've developed a keen awareness of the value that an engaged diaspora can deliver. We should consider the diaspora, as Mr Varghese says, as a network which can open doors, help navigate Indian business culture, enhance the community's understanding of contemporary India and contribute to Australia's public diplomacy in India. Because it's human interactions and relationships that form the foundation of every diplomatic and economic link. Relationships which enable nations to work together in the pursuit of shared goals and interests. I'd like to conclude by sharing a personal reflection as someone of Indian origin. Last year, I had the privilege to visit a very special and historic place in India. I stood at a memorial on the edge of the Kitabur port along the Hooghly River in Calcutta to pay my respects to the significant contribution Indian indentured labourers made when they left on crowded British ships to help build the colonies, 
between 1834 and 1920. The Memorial Square block of black marble commemorates their resilience, determination and pioneering spirit and the significant contributions made by them in their adopted countries. These indentured labourers included my great-grandparents and their adopted country was the sugarcane-rich Fiji. And as I stood on the river's edge, I imagined the hundreds of crowded ships that would have sailed down that river, carrying thousands of Indians who were leaving their home on long, treacherous journeys to places unknown. Unaware what the future of being indentured would bring. Indeed, a hundred years ago, when my great-grandparents departed India for new frontiers, there was no knowing what an incredible, positive contribution the Indian diaspora would make across the globe. It is a contribution for which we here in Australia are so much the better off. And to quote Peter Varghese, taking the relationship with India to the level it deserves is a long haul journey. It will take leadership, time, effort and consistent focus. If we get it right, we will both enhance the prosperity and security of Australians and help realise the aspirations of the 1.3 billion Indians who sense their time has come and a better life is within their grasp. Thank you.